Well, okay, we'll, uh, we'll get started if everybody's ready. Yeah, it was that guy. It was that guy. I did. I saw. I taught Psalm eighty-four and eighty-seven. Uh, better is one day. Yes. What a great song. What a great song. When he mentioned it, I I said I I can't tell you. I haven't heard that song. It's probably been ten years. Like. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand's elsewhere. I mean, it does. What a great song. What a great song. Yeah, there was a lot of connections I felt like from the sermon on Sunday and uh, our Sunday school study in Psalms. Uh, Psalm 84 and 87. Mm. Well, uh, let's pray and we'll jump in. God, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace and your kindness that you give us in Christ Jesus. How undeserving we are, God, of it. Uh, And God, I pray that, Lord, just by our time here today, as we think more deeply about your word, that it would only increase our love and desires and affections for Jesus Christ, our, our God and Savior and King. And Lord, that we would abide in your teaching and your teaching would abide in us, your word would abide in us, and we would bear much fruit from it, O God. Lord, I thank you that you've given us your word to know you by. God, you have revealed yourself, and we want to be diligent, God. And that I pray that what we do here uh, at Leftovers, and any time we come together to study the Bible, it's not about downloading information. It's about receiving the revelation that you've given us and being transformed by it to live lives of obedience to you, God. Lord, I pray be with our time now. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Okay, Exodus uh, 25, 10 through 40, or uh, the other side of this, Exodus 37, 1 through 24, which, uh, like I said at the beginning, we didn't, we didn't look at any of it, because almost all of it is pretty much verbatim in Exodus 25, other than you find out that the guy who's been given the task of constructing these instruments or these furnishings, this furniture, is Bezalel. Um, so... But anything from Exodus 25, 10 through 40 that you want to talk about, discuss, reflect on? The bread of presence. The bread of presence. The showbread. The showbread. The showbread. So they had 12, didn't they? 12 loaves. Fellowship with each tribe, because we know as you read on, some of those tribes. You're like, man, it's like the so it's like the crazy uncle you don't uh, you don't uh, well, claim. Well, the tribe of Dan's hardly mentioned after a while. You just don't even. Yeah. Uh, so I think fresh loaves are supposed to be brought in every seven days, if I remember that correctly, from uh, Leviticus. But did the priest then eat the old bread, or what was done? <laughs> well, David did. it's uh, it's really interesting in the book of Samuel, right? Is that that's uh, this is the story that gets brought up in the Gospels. So um, 
when people are mad that Jesus was um, working on the Sabbath, right? And then Jesus brings up the story about David when him and his men are basically fleeing for their lives and they're hungry. And I think it's the priest of Nob, if I want to, if I recall that, priest of Nob. They go in and they eat the showbread. They eat the bread of presence that's there on the table. And that's where Jesus can make his point is that who was made for the Sabbath and who was the Sabbath made for? Yeah. So. Yeah. But yeah, the 12 loaves are there. And I do think they're representative of the tribes of Israel, God's people. And so there's significance even to the number of, of loaves there. Anything else that stood out to you want to reflect on? Didn't we talk about the significance of how the bread is placed in front of the lamp? And uh, if, if there is any significance with the positioning? Yeah, yeah. So it it's... I won't... Do I want to try and drop? So I'm going to try and... Let's just pretend like this is menorah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, yeah, sorry. And, but even that is not actually an accurate representation of the menorah. As we talked about today, um, it's much more tree-like if you want to, uh, if you want to talk about that. So, much more tree-like. I f- man, I found a really good so picture of one. Well, I found a really good picture by a guy named um, Daniel Hayes. He's an Old Testament professor who drew drew something like this. And yeah, I, I don't I don't think it was as probably as neatly like this as you might find. I think it still had all the features of that, but like, um, yeah. Um, how do I want to explain this? Well, that's why. Not even sure. It's not yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, it's yeah. To me, if you say tree like, if you stagger them, you know what I mean? Like branches all around the tree. But I don't know. I know it's not significant. Yeah. Well, it's significant because the language that's used to describe it is significant, right? Like the calyxes and the flowers and the branches and the blossoms. And that's the way that it's, you know, it's being used to describe its tree language, botanical language, if you want to say it like that. So, but um, yeah, but the light, so the light from the menorah is to shine on the table of where the bread, you know, the loaves, you know, uh, would be and not in the language of it is that actually it shows in front of it so it may not necessarily just be on the bread but all that's in front of the of the of the table so basically when you go into the entrance the the lampstand is actually shining in front of the table where you see the bread of presence and you see all the other items that are in the holy place so yeah the snuffers, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, there's some debate um, when I was reading through this about the practices of snuffing the lights out. When did the lights, when were they snuffed out and stuff like that? Because 
I don't know uh, if they ran through the night, in a sense, um, or if they ran throughout all the day, because the day didn't necessarily, you didn't necessarily need the light, right, to be there. But during the night, you may have. Well, if it was an enclosed tent and it was inside the holy place, the second right. place, it would probably have been dark in there, would it not? Right. You, you would, this is not, yeah, you're not, you're not, you don't have gaps in the curtains and stuff like that where you have light shining through. Is that This is the light that actually enables you to walk through uh, the compartments of the tabernacle. What daily activity happened in that part of the tabernacle? Hmm. What daily activity happened in that part of the tabernacle? Like what daily activity? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that may have been the only activity. Uh, you know, I I I'm trying to think through all the different like aromas that were burned and stuff like that. The b- burning aromas that you'll find in in Leviticus burnt offering and stuff like that. But that's so all the cleansing stuff was outside by the. Yeah, by the yeah the the bronze altar. Yeah, so yeah, I don't I don't know if any of that was necessarily going on in in that compartment. But like I said, kind of in passing, they still wanted to keep the lights on, right? They still wanted to keep the menorah lit, even if there's nothing going on in there, because it was a symbol to say that somebody inhabits this place. There's somebody home, you know. Kind of like when we go by somebody's house, you drive by. How do you know if they're home or not? Lights are on, right? Oh, they must be home, right? They must be home. You know where to trick or treat, right? If the lights are out, you don't go, you don't knock on that door. Uh, so, look, I'm guilty. I've turned the lights off, you know, during during Halloween. So, but yeah, so the lighting of the the lampstand is a reminder that so, somebody inhabits this place. Somebody dwells here. Um, so, but yeah. Yeah, I guess I particularly look, really love what you said about that. You know, the lamp, the lamp stand is actually the reminder of the tree of life, and that light and life are intimately connected. I thought that was really important. The other thing I thought was, that hit me was we don't need an ark to come to have Jesus. I thought that was really good. I hadn't really thought about it. I don't think I knew that. I hadn't really, you know put that together, uh, the importance of, he is the mercy seat, he's the source of the blood, he's, he's, he's everything, he, he is the covenant. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I was actually thinking about this. this. Right. I mean, you, you can think about a whole bunch of aspects there. Yeah. Well, yeah, true, true, he's the bread as well, he's the life. Yeah, yeah, you don't need yeah. So I was actually thinking about this on the way up here, the way the New Testament really paints this picture really well, is that it wants you to understand that you don't need any of these things anymore. And that he Christ in a very dynamic way is all these things at the very same time. For example, we talked about that Christ is the mercy seat. Or, I mean, you could say the altar in some sense. And you get that from Romans 3.25, right? So, you know, that he is the propitiation or 
depending on your translation, you might have atoning, uh, sacrifice of atonement or atoning cover or, um, uh, I'm trying to remember what I said CSB had. Um, I think CSB has mercy seat in Romans 3.25. And so he, he's all these things. But also we've, we've heard from other places he's the sacrifice. We've also heard that in Hebrews he's the priest. Right? Like uh, all these different dynamics. And then he's called the temple, right? Or the tabernacle himself. Like all these things, the New Testament authors want to say, he's all these things at the very same time. That's why you don't need any of these things anymore. You don't need a tabernacle or a temple. You don't need a mercy seat. You don't need a sacrifice. You don't need a priest. You, all these things. So the way in which the New Testament authors kind of bring all this together in Christ is really beautiful, taking all this language to say, this is, this is why the author of Hebrews can say, these things have become obsolete. Obsolete. Now we know what obsolete means in our own technological world, right? I don't think anybody is still using an iPhone 1. I mean, I'd love to see it though. But I don't know about y'all, but like at a point, iPhones, whatever iPhone you get, like you can't use it anymore. Like because they do so many updates, right? That your phone can't your phone can't do anything with it. It becomes obsolete. Did you have you ever seen a BlackBerry? Oh yeah. My mom had one. Oh yeah. I got to wonder how old you are. All the eight eight hundred buttons. And you just so yeah, obsolete. You, the, it's you can't use it. It's no. It's yeah. It's just a. It's a small keyboard. It's not functional. It it, it can't uphold. And so that's what the author of Hebrews says. All these things are obsolete. They're not unimportant. They're obsolete. They can't do what they were intended to do from the very from the beginning when they were established. They're installed. And that this is why the author of Hebrews, Romans, First Peter, all these other places say Christ fulfills all these things. They pointed to them. Shadows. So, yeah. Well, um, let's just work through a couple of pieces of these furniture because I think it's interesting. You know, talking about the Ark of the Covenant and that it's associated with holiness. Uh, is because as later authors, particularly Psalms is really big in this, and even Hezekiah's prayer in 2 Kings 19, where the psalmist Hezekiah will say things like, um, God is enthroned above the cherubim, or the cherubim. And where are the cherubim at? Well, that's a byword or a catchphrase for the ark, because the cherubim were constructed and placed around the ark of the covenant, around the mercy seat. And so this is how they refer to the Ark of the Covenant. God is enthroned. So that's why I said in passing on Sunday is the Ark becomes this, the metaphorical throne of God, right? Like a chair that he would sit on. And so because it's this place, it, it takes primary importance here in these verses where it's the first, it's kind of the centerpiece, right? And uh, you, you can see how it's the centerpiece just in the way of its construction and the sizes and the lengths and stuff like that is that it's bigger than the table for the bread of presence. There's a, there's a reason for that. It's bigger because it's more important in some sense. 
And, you know, that this becomes associated with God's holy presence. And I think it's, I think we need to, I want to look at 2 Samuel 6 real quick because I think this is really interesting. Uh, I had to kind of tell the story really in passing on Sunday, but as you know, in 2 Samuel 6 is the sad story of Uzzah. You know, he makes a small cameo, right? Small cameo. And man, when your small cameo in the Bible is only a couple of verses, like 11 verses, and you died, uh, it's, not a, it's not a good look for you. Especially because the thing that you did was you were told not to do. And David, David gets angry with this, right? Well, this is, uh, this is 2 Samuel 6, when they're transporting the ark. And this really starts in verse 5. Uh, let me just say, okay, let me go back to verse 3. So they're transporting the ark, and the author is already trying to tell you some things are going wrong. Things are going wrong. They're not doing it like they should. They think they're doing a nice thing, but they're really not. Second Samuel 6, verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a what? Oh, they got it a new cart, man. We, look, we built this thing just for this ark. We wanted to make sure it was transported properly. No, how was it supposed to be transported? By the poles. God was very clear how it was to be transported. And so they brought it to the house of Abinadab. And then in verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps. Keep going down. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. There's another problem. Is that this ark can be treated like any other piece of furniture or any other you know, piece of construction. When in actuality, this is where God's presence is dwelling with His people, the throne of God. So to treat it like any other piece of furniture is basically, it's simplifying or making insignificant a one who is seated upon it. And if you really want to read a really good, um, it's not a commentary, it's a book, but a really good discussion on this, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. We have it in the back table on the back uh, in the sanctuary. And it talks about this chapter. And I mean, it's worth the price of the book, I think. It's, I mean, it's a great book the whole way around. But um, Anybody else read that in here? Any, any thoughts? Dr. David, I know you've read that. Great book. Uh, would, would highly recommend it. So, Jeff's on this? Would they have moved it like this? Because that's how it came back. Because before this, wasn't it captured in battle, battle by the Philistines, and then God sent plagues to the Philistines? So they put it on a cart with oxen, and like, if this is theirs, let it find its only back. So could that be why they thought that's how it was supposed to be transported? Well, they were told how it was supposed to be transported. So nothing really justifies necessarily how they got it or how it was given to them. You know, uh, it was clearly revealed that the poles were to be created, made, layered with gold. They were to be put into the rings that were on the ark. And the poles were to remain in the rings. And they, I mean, it's clearly specific in, in Exodus 25. They were not to be taken out. So the only way that you can put an ark on, on a cart is to take out the poles, right? 
So it's clearly that, that there's something wrong here. I mean, other than all the things that are going wrong already in Second Samuel. Um, but this is just another indicator. So they were to treat this thing with the utmost care and utmost respect. And by transporting it incorrectly and by treating it as insignificant by reaching out your hand, it actually cost Uzzah his life in 2 Samuel 6. And so, which I said in passing, and I think it's a good thing to say again here, uh, partial obedience will never be approved or accepted by God. Partial obedience is not, well, you know, I did part, I did part of it, so God will, God will uh, he'll give me a great participation award, right, for just being there and showing up, right? Um, you, you see what, you see what um, partial obedience got Uza, right? He carried the ark, he put it on a cart. But that's not what God said exactly to do. So I think it's a warning to us. The ark is important because it's got the testimony of God inside of it. They put serious, sacred things inside of the ark. And that the ark is covered with all these cherubim, all these supernatural flying figures. And when you see these figures, you know that you're in the presence of God in some sense. Um, I, just in passing on Sunday, I said, when you see the secret service, who do you think about? Who, who, who's going to be there? You think about the president, right? And when you see these cherubim or these seraphim, these supernatural figures winged, and then you should expect that you're about to see God. This is exactly what Isaiah 6 is talking about, is that he is transported in a vision to the throne room. There are seraphim there. He realizes, oh no, why am I here? Like, he knows, just a rant for a second. I, I, it seems like Isaiah knows, oh no, I should not be here. Like, I'm in the throne room of God. I should be dead right now. Like, like he knows he's in a, he's, he has not done the right, he's not, <laughs> he's not done the appropriate things to walk into the presence of God. That's why you get the priest, right? They have to make the appropriate sacrifices. They have to wear the appropriate underwear, right? That's, which we'll get into that in, in two weeks. Uh, the priestly undergarments. Yeah. So they have to even wear the right things to enter into the presence of God. And Isaiah is just transported in a vision there, and he realizes, oh no, I have not done what I need to be here, right? Jacob sees the same thing going up and down the ladder in his vision with the Lord. Right. Yeah, he sees these angels going, and that's why Jesus makes reference to this in John chapter 2, where when he meets Nathaniel, and he says, you think you've seen, you know, you think those angels descending and ascending upon the ladder, you'll see the Son of Man descending and ascending. So, yeah, there's lots of these people who, who are, and then that's what's so beautiful of Isaiah 6, is he realizes that he is a man of unclean lips, right? And the seraphim come down there with tongs and a coal, puts it on his lips, and cleanses him right there. So, so these cherubim and seraphim uh, um, are, are identifying this place as something sacred, something holy, that God's, God's presence is there. We'll see the cherubim again this week in the curtains that we'll be talking about in Isaiah in in uh, Exodus 26. So, any more thoughts on that? What's the significance of the cherubim, their faces, as it was 
I don't know. You know, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And if you go to Ezekiel one, Ezekiel ten, there's lots of language. Again, a th- throne room language, but there's a lot of other. Uh, I almost said weird stuff, but it is weird. Uh, cool, weird stuff in Ezekiel. Um, and so, uh, but cherubim and seraphim are there as well. And um, so, but it's like a moving throne. There's like wheels and there's tons of eyes and wings and stuff like that. But I don't know if... Um, they're holding up the platform. Yeah, yeah. Like they're, they're the... So... I don't know if that's a significant feature, but it sounds like it might be of the seraphim. Uh, the word seraph in Hebrew is burning one. So it seems to be a derivative of that, that verb to burn. So they may, may have been a fiery uh, looking figure. Yeah, I'm sure. Cherubim, yeah, in, in Genesis 3.24 is that God places them on the edges of the garden to protect it, to keep anybody from coming back in after Adam and Eve have been exiled out, and they're there with flaming sword. So that's interesting, too, is that seraphim and cherubim are associated with fire of some form. Yeah. So, yeah, we did, uh, you know, when we did the... The study on angels, demons, heaven and hell a couple years ago for the equipping class. Um, we spent a lot of time to think about these cherubim and seraphim. Um, and just in my own study of thinking about these things. So these are not, they, cherubim and seraphim are never called angels. So it seems to be a different, a different group or category of super, I, I keep, I'll say supernatural beings. Um, so it's like a different category. These are always, you find them only in the presence or in the throne room of God. You don't find them interacting with humans much. And the categories are distinct based on their responsibilities. Responsibilities, right. Yeah, so angels are, um, from its word, malach, are messengers uh, of some form. But cherubim are never bringing message, messages to people. Uh, so... Cherubim? It says if they're not exactly angels, did any of them fall when Satan rebelled? It says angels fell. Yeah. It doesn't say any cherubim or seraphim fell. Yeah. Because they're a different category of beings. Yeah. A different category. So, yeah, there's something special about this place because it's got cherubim all over it. And, um, and so... Yeah, this is, makes the ark really dangerously holy. And I, I want to turn to Jeremiah 3. I had to read this quickly. But this is, this is kind of the promises to Israel about, you know, a day is coming when they won't need the ark of the covenant for various reasons. Um, and and I, I think this all relates to new covenant promises, actually. And so... As we said, the Ark of the Covenant it has the testimonies, the testimony in it, inside of it. It's 
the symbol of God's presence or the place where God's presence dwells. And so in Jeremiah 3, uh, verse 16, the Lord says this, And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. So they're not going to make, when, when the days ahead come, the future comes, they're not going to say, look, there's the Ark of the Covenant. Or, hey, look, it's coming into town. Or, hey, let's go see the, you know, let's go to the temple or things like that. The Ark of the Covenant's there. No. It shall not come to mind. Now, can you believe that? It shall not even come to their minds. Something that is so significant for them, that has been so significant for them in the tabernacle and later on in the temple, is that Jeremiah's saying there's going to come a day when you won't even think about the Ark. Yes, Jim. Yeah, me and Leslie were just talking about this before. Is that yeah? I I don't look. Could they find it? Sure. Uh, do I think they'll find it? Probably no. Um, do I think that people will, if we did find it, like worship it? Yes. Um, and unfortunately, what we just talked about here is that you shouldn't. It's because you don't need an ark. You don't need those things, and this is what. Jeremiah is trying to be really clear. You won't even care about these things in the future. Uh, you won't even care about the ark. So, I mean, if it was just an, a historical artifact, I guess that would be cool. But as y'all know, our proclivities are really to venerate artifacts. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry. Sorry, we have um, a tendency. A tendency. We have a tendency to. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We have a tendency. Sorry, a tendency to um, to give worship to material objects. Prone to. Most definitely will. So. Yeah. And it would be pretty to see. Sure. Yeah. But, yeah, but the, it's the significance that it carries is no longer intended. It's obsolete. As a furniture builder, I'd be very interested in it. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, I think it's Today's people would criticize it. Yeah, yeah. Architects would, like, come in. It's like, oh, that wasn't well built, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But this is what he's saying. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or be missed. What do you miss it? It shall not be made again. So like Yeah, like like yeah. yeah. Don't, don't So why look for something that you don't miss, right? You know, so it won't even be reconstructed. They're even told, don't even try and rebuild it. Like, yeah, you lost it in the invasions. Don't even try and rebuild it. I think 
Reconstructed Ark of the Covenant? Well, because they believe, you know, it will be rebuilt and it yeah. will need to be furnished just like, you know, this. Because they don't believe in Jesus, you know. And so they've been building menorah and they've been doing a whole bunch. And I guess they've done the Ark, too. And, and this, is, this, is Jeremiah's, this is Jeremiah's thing, is that he said, you won't miss it and it shall not be made again because... Now the presence of the Lord is no longer going to be located in an object. So verse 17, at that time Jerusalem, it's the pe- and it's not talking about the city. It's, talking, it's, a, it's a catchword for the people, God's people, shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. This is verse 17 in, in Jeremiah 3. Yeah, I think this is pre pre exile and all these things and pre you know. So they're saying, look, you're not gonna need a physical object because God's people are gonna be God's throne. He's gonna be enthroned in their hearts, right? And people are gonna go to them, right? So remember they're being taken in stages. Right. The bright people are already gone. <laughs> yeah, Daniel and all his friends are gone, right? So now, you know, Jeremiah's left to prophesize to, you know, some that may be reaching for things. Yeah. And now he's saying he won't care. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, just a little side. When Chris and I were in Israel and Jerusalem, the Jewish people are reconstructing things yeah. that were noted in the Old Testament that were in the temple and anticipated that. Yeah. Well, flip over to Jeremiah 31. This Jeremiah even takes this a step farther about. You don't need to reconstruct the ark. You don't, need to, you don't need to reconstruct any of these things. Because, again, the ark and, you know, uh, houses the uh, testimony, what it says, of the Lord. And then Jeremiah 31, which, look, Jeremiah 31 is kind of one of those big passages in the Bible that, you know, I would say is, is um, almost like a thread in some sense. Or not even a thread, but like... It's one of those pillars. Let me just say that. Second Samuel 7 is another one. Genesis 3 is one. Um, you know, all these places. But Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, big passages. Because Jeremiah is talking, you know, the Lord's saying, there comes a day. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when that took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. There's coming something different. There's coming something different in the future. A new covenant, unlike the ones that you put into the ark, right? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within the ark. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? Within them. And I will write it on tablets of stone? No. I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will, shall be my people. Paul picks this up in 2 Corinthians when it's talking about how he writes, he writes his law on our hearts. Right? So this is how Jeremiah is making his argument. You don't need these furnishings anymore. You don't need this temple because God's doing something bigger, bigger, where he's 
No longer you need an Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwells. You will be the place. You no longer need to put the testimony into the Ark because it'll be written on your hearts. And so... Uh, so is he telling the people that lived at that time? Or is he referring to those of us after Jesus came? Yeah, I, I think Jeremiah is writing... I think all the prophets are looking towards a future when these things would be fulfilled. Um, where, yeah, where they're looking forward because I think for the prophets, they have this understanding that there's going to come a seed from the woman who's going to crush the serpent's head. I think they have an idea that there's going to come a lion from Judah, from Genesis 49. They have an idea that there's going to come a star out of Jacob, Numbers 24. They have an idea that there's going to come a king, a Davidic king that will have an eternal throne from 2 Samuel 7. And so then Jeremiah picks this up. I mean, Jeremiah uses the language to connect to all those. The branch of Jesse. So Jeremiah 11, and, or Isaiah 11 is another place, but Jeremiah 23 is another place where that's brought up again. Where it's like this branch of Jesse is the Davidic king of 2 Samuel 7, is the star of Jacob of Numbers 24, is the lion king of Judah of Genesis 49, is the seed of the woman of Genesis 3. And so saying, this, is, this was never meant, and that's what I said on Sunday in passing a little bit, this was never supposed to be permanent for God's people. It was always meant to be fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I would I would think it's probably yeah, an ox or a ram of some form, which we all know, you know, where a ram is significant. It was two different kinds of ox that it was the the more uh the one that you would have like a cattle and then there was a, a wild ox. So mm. one that would be a sacrifice and one that would be at war against the nations and gore the nations. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's interesting. I don't know that text off the top I of my head. Remember. Yeah, I mean, rams are significant, particularly from Genesis 22, when the ram that's caught in the thicket takes the place of Isaac. Remember that? Hmm. So yeah, they don't need the ark anymore because, um, you know, they have, they have God's law written on their heart, and they're the place where um, God is intending to dwell. And then, you know, we get the mercy seat here, you know, talking about that, and, you know, we've spoken a little bit of about its significance, of it's the place of atonement. Um, and I was having to, you know, we were talking about this, these verses on Saturday night with the boys, and they asked about atonement. And maybe y'all can help me with this. I was trying my best to give a definition to a, at that time, five-year-old of atonement. Something that would, would not skirt the issue and make it any less significant. But it was... It was, uh, what did I say? Gosh. That's, um, Whatever it was was over there. Yeah, it was still, it was still <laughs> like, uh, 
the what did I say? The cleansing, of, the forgiveness of sin through sacrifice or something like that. Or oh gosh, it was it was definitely in more words than one, and was definitely not sufficient to uh, to clear up clear it up. But but yeah, um, anybody got any better for a kid? Yeah, that's that's the exact, not that example, but that was the example that I used. I said, what if you threw a rock? Oh, I think I used the baseball. You threw the baseball through the neighbor's yard or neighbor's uh, window. What do you think the right thing is for you to do? Jude was like, pay for it because I broke it. Like that is, that is atonement. So that was the simplest way I could give it to him. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear your confirmation right there. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, first you have to go and confess I did it. Yeah, right. Yeah, like that's the part. Part of atonement is that. Yeah. It's the acknowledgement that what I have done is wrong, and that there is a it necessitates me to make it right. Sorry, it requires me to make it right. Uh, and so, it. Uh, thank you. You're, you are helping me out. You are helping me out, Miss Kathy. And it requires someone to make it right. It cannot be left undone, right? Um, if, we do, if, we, or if we sin right now, we have to do the same thing. Confess our I sins. Mean, if we don't, I mean, okay, God, I did. I mean, I admit that I did it. Is that it? Yeah. The only thing is we can't make it right. Yeah. No, we can't make we it, have right. To it on Jesus to make it right. Right, right. right. But we have to, we have to confess it. Sure. Yeah, right, right. That's what 1 John 1 9 is saying is that conf- confess your sins, for he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all iniquity. I mean, that is atonement. You wouldn't even be listening to me if I wasn't it. Yeah, like, or, and this is what, I mean, this is the problem is that un- unbelievers, people who've not, Receive the Spirit and had an understanding of these things. Don't care about what has been done wrong, and don't feel the need to make anything right. Yeah, do not feel the need to make anything right. Um, so unless I mean, I think you did fine. <laughs> yeah, I was just looking for a crowd approval, but but this is what atonement is, and this is what's happening at the mercy seat when the high priest goes before you know, Leviticus 16 to make atonement for the people's sins, to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, right? And that what Leviticus 17 says is that it's a life for a life. The animal is taking the place. It's substitutionary in a sense. Life for life. But the mercy seat, just by nature of having a mercy seat, is a reminder, what Hebrews says, year after year, that people are sinners. I mean, just by nature of having a mercy seat is a reminder. Not everything is right. Because if everything was right, God would have, I mean, I'm speculating here, but God would not have given any need or He would not have instructed them to make a mercy seat in the first place, right? If there was no problem to fix, to atone for so, but as Hebrews says, that these sacrifices done, uh, done every year could. He, he, here's what it, it could not make perfect 
the one who draws near. Could not make perfect. And but it, the purpose was to point to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. All but, this to point, you know, we have obviously the advantage now on this side of the cross to see all of that pointing to a better way, a better perfect lamb, better sacrifice. Yeah. To Jesus. They, you know, but it, they still had to believe in that. Right, yeah. They were believing in Jesus. Well, it, it's it's pointing and it's perfecting because what the 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 sacrifices were were not actually dealing with the issue because what the author of Hebrews says is that what the sacrifices could not do was Hebrews nine says is to clear the conscience right it could not clear a conscience and so you still have a guilty conscience. You still know that you've sinned and that the sacrifice of whatever animal is significant, but it actually doesn't, it doesn't do what's internal. It can't exactly. cleanse that. It's repeating it. It's in a subtle way of acknowledging it. It's, repeating it's, it's, it's exactly. It's exactly. Yeah, the thing that confuses me on that last though is what, what, what Gaius was saying. Old Testament people, they still by faith trusted in that covering of, of by the blood of their sin. That's right. Uh, and looking forward to the, the permanent. Uh, so I think we need to be careful in saying, uh, I mean, I'm not arguing with Hebrews, don't get me wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> Hebrews are saying it couldn't do, but there was, there was still that salvation in the Old Testament of, by, by faith. And, and if, if, the person, if the person bringing the sacrifice, if they just did it, you know, by rote, by ritual, yeah. But, but, yeah. Uh, there, was, there, was not, there was not forgiveness. There was not cleansing, right? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, for them, you know, Zechariah 14 actually, yeah, Zechariah 14 brings this up. It's almost like a, um, I, this is not a great analogy, but, you know, it's, it's the difference in getting a new car and then getting a fix on a car that, is going to go out in a couple couple years again. You know, it's like a new it's like getting a battery when you really need a new car. Yeah, it may get the job done for another couple of years then, but it's ultimately going to go out again. And so because it could never perfect, but it was what actually God it was a merciful thing for God to even provide the tabernacle and the sacrifices because it's what it's doing is propitiating the wrath of God. Um, so if they didn't do it, they are, they are putting themselves in a hostile position towards God. This is what Zechariah 14 is saying, is that there's going to come a day when the nations, and it uses Egypt particularly, and they're to, go to the tap, they're, they're to go to the temple at that point. They're to go to the temple and make sacrifices and offerings after they've, been you know, after they've lost the, the battle, right? And Zechariah says, if they don't do that, they're putting themselves in a position of hostility towards God where the wrath of God still remains on them. So, I think this is what John 3 means. When, when John 3, I mean, we all think about verse 16, but the, the rest of the verses, and I think I'm thinking about John 3, 35, the wrath of God remains on them. Meaning, they actually have not atoned for their sin. Their sin is not, because atonement, it doesn't just cleanse the person. It I don't want to say redirects, but maybe it redirects the wrath of God at a different person. 
redirects is not. The price was paid, but not once. Yeah, I don't redirects is not the right word, but. I've heard people say with the atonement that you know you're you're this way with God, atonement puts you back at one with God. That's right. It, it, at at one with. Yeah. So to speak. It is because. Because that's what, that's what the sacrificial system is doing in Leviticus and here in Exodus, is that it's, it's continuing to keep fellowship with God. It's continuing to come back into fellowship with God. And that is the, that is the conditions or the instructions of how to keep that relationship at right for a limited time. that we oftentimes are confused because let me just say I, I think the main idea with atonement in the sacrificial system is is dwelling within the presence of God and because of our sin our, we're, on a, we're not allowed to be in the presence of God so there's this sacred space and what we've done in our space is profane it with, with our sin so in order for us to be in the presence of God we have Something has to be done. It's through that sacrifice that we're able to enter into His presence. So, I'm just curious, and I'm, I'm interested to talk about it. If there is like the forgiveness of sins that we talk about, wasn't necessarily on the minds of the Israelites. If it was more so, I'm a part of the family of God as an Israelite. I would be their God, and they would be my people. So it's through this whole ritual now that I get to actually experience that in its fullness. Because of the new covenant, what Jesus has done is now he allows the nations to be a part of that. And so there, I wonder if, if, if we kind of, if I confuse the language. They don't think of themselves as losing fellowship with God. And that, that, so why the first five books so important? Because all the other books talk about all the ways that we've stayed out of fellowship with God. All the things that we continue to do to stay out of fellowship with God. And if we would still go back to what God told us in those first five books, we would maintain our fellowship with God, but they're never able to do that. Jeremiah's telling them, you never will be able to do it. You know, Isaiah's telling them, there's going to be a better way. You know, but the Jewish priests and the Jewish history, and remember that there's a, a very dark period where there was no leadership in that area. They, they don't get it either. Um, nope. In rebuilding temples after temple after temple, it doesn't, they become less and less grand because they don't have the uh, direction of God uh, or the resources. Uh, yeah. I, um, chance, they, they definitely dealt with sin. They had to. Otherwise, the Day of Atonement wouldn't be necessary. Exactly. So I'm not saying that. There was a scapegoat. There was a scapegoat that represented the sin of the people that was carried away. I don't want to minimize it, but what I'm thinking is that was that atonement was so that they could be in the presence of God. Yeah. When we talk about atonement, it's 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 also so that we could be in the presence of God through relationship with Jesus. So I just, I'm I'm still developing that in my head. Yeah, I think that we've probably made. Um, I I wouldn't say that we've taken like a, a New Testament understanding and place it on the, um, you know, the atonement. Um, 
I think that Paul is reading these chapters similar to us, and I think that atonement is just more robust than just being made righteous. Um, atonement is about fellowship. It's about righteousness. It's about uh, propitiation of God's wrath. It's, atonement is, is more than just a one word that we can give to it. It's allowing fellowship with God. It's averting His wrath, His justice, it's yeah it's it's being included into a people because so that that's even a different dynamic that what Paul is talking about in Galatians is that atonement doesn't just doesn't just remove God's wrath from you it doesn't just make you righteous a positional standing before God it doesn't just bring you into fellowship with him it actually brings you into fellowship with his people and that's why first John can say things like that we have fellowship with one another because we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. So I think we just, and this might be from the Reformation in some sense, what they were working against is that they were talking about justification from this, uh, this angle of how can a person be made right before God? That's, that's the question that they were trying to deal with. And so they answered it from a one-sided angle because of the, what was going on and what they were fighting against. But atonement and justification is dynamic in the sense of it deals with all the things. Fellowship, righteousness, uh, forgiveness, you know, cleansing of conscience. So, yeah, I, I, I think Paul deals with all those different facets and angles of atonement. Well, I think they had an understanding of Trinity. Uh, so I think they understood that the triune God created the heavens and the earth. Um, I think they saw that the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. And I think they understood the second person of the Trinity as the wisdom of God in Proverbs 8, who constructed and framed the foundations of the earth. Um, that's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 2 that Jesus is the wisdom of God who brought the world into being. So I think they had, a tr they had an understanding of a triune God, and I also think they had an understanding of Messiah, like we just kind of worked out from the seed of the woman to the star of Jacob to the lion of Judah. I think they understood that the, sacri the sacrificial system was temporary. It wasn't actually dealing with, you know, I don't think they... I don't think an Israelite believed that this was how it was going to be for the rest of their lives. I think the, the biblical literature is saying that they're waiting on somebody. I mean, Isaiah, particularly in Isaiah 53, so they're waiting on somebody who's going to bring an end to the sacrificial system. So Isaiah and the prophets, and it seems like the people, another example, it seems like the people in Luke 2 that you get, um, you know, you get a... a, a Anna, right? And uh, you get Simeon, who are waiting on the um, consolation of Israel. So you have Jews who knew that what was, what was established was not always what was going to be, that there was going to be a fulfillment of these things. So I think they understood in all these sacrifices, for the most part, that they knew that they were waiting for an ultimate sacrifice.
and that some recognized that it was Christ, and some did not. Some did not. Any other thoughts? We got three minutes. I'm trying to think. After the fall, yeah, yeah, it's it's reestablishing this this relationship that existed. I mean, this is why we get all this Genesis language all over these chapters, is that God is trying to reestablish Genesis one and two again with His people, or or a a semblance of it. You say that it was, yeah, it was all it was. What we'll see this week, and I'll just go ahead and give you a little taste, is that even having curtains and walls of a tabernacle says something about Israel's relationship. They can't walk freely among God's presence. Curtains and walls say that there's limitations to access. In the garden, there was no limitations to access. God walked freely among them, what Genesis 3.8 says. He's walking in the cool of the day. Curtains say... There's no in and out here like that you used to have. So even curtains say that there is a level of access and separation that has to be between God and His people. And it's even more accentuated in that they weave, skillfully weave, cherubim into those curtains. To say you can't come back in and out like you used to. Somebody. This may be what you discuss next Wednesday, but uh, back to the tabernacle. Do I remember correctly that so there's the outer court where the the altar, the lake, the, the basement where they wash and all this stuff, and then the holy place, the most holy place. But only the priest went in there. The people That's right. even go in any part of it. The 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 limitation. They gathered outside. The the limitations and restrictions of access. Just think about this. So. So they could only go, the people could only go to a certain part. And then a priest could only go to a certain part. And then a, the high priest could only go to a certain part. And only one time a year. So time is a restriction. People are a restriction. Place is a restriction. The barriers to accessing God's presence. Yeah, there's only there's limitations on the people, so of who can go in and who can't. So not every priest gets to go in. Uh, I'll I'll say this last thing because I know I ran through this at the end of the uh, 
at the end of the sermon, and Myra was like, you got to slow it down. Uh, you, made, you, you made the sign language lady go way too fast. And uh, that was her words to me. You got to let the sign language lady go. Uh, an ark, uh, in the future new heavens and new earth, you won't need an ark because God's presence will be there among his people perfectly and completely. Revelation 21.3. You won't need a mercy seat because the atonement has been made by which is why you can be there in the first place. John sees a lamb as though it had been slain. You won't need a table or the bread of presence because all of our needs will be met and we will have fellowship together at the marriage supper of the lamb. Revelation 19.7. The lampstand won't be needed because the glory of God and the lamb will be our light and our life. Revelation 21.23.22.5. So... Yeah, I realized that. I was like, you know, what do I want people to take away if they don't catch it in the midst of the sermon? I was like, I mean, the cross references probably. It's the best thing I can do. Yeah. Well, thank y'all again. Let me pray for us and uh, we'll dismiss. And we can eat, maybe. Yeah. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this group of people. And we thank you for the food that you've provided. And God, we ultimately know that, God, we um, find our spiritual nourishment from your word. Man cannot live by bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth. Bless us now, O Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank y'all. This is a great way. Y'all really didn't have to do that. Really, you don't have to do that again, what y'all just sang. <laughs> Next year, you really don't have to do that. Today is my... Grants was yesterday. Grants was yesterday. And Hayes is in the 19th. Nineteenth, right? Yeah. It's about to say, Wes, are you telling your asking? Yeah, I'm asking. I don't. I I forget. <laughs>